Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas and it's great to be with you again this morning. Stand together as we hear God call us into worship from Psalm 146. These are the first two verses of the psalm. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Amen. Let's join together in the hymn of praise. Angels we have heard on high. You'll have an insert in your bulletin. We'll sing all three verses together. Please be seated. We now have the joy and privilege to approach the Lord in a season of prayer together. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are infinite and eternal, unchangeable 
in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You have created all things, seen and unseen, the visible and the invisible, are alike to you because you have made them and you sustain them. There is nothing that is outside of your control. There is nothing that catches you by surprise. There's nothing that has caught you off guard. You are the God of all creation. And we have come together, gathered in your midst with the heavenly hosts and your saints all over the world this day to worship you and to worship you alone. You are worthy of all praise and honor and power and glory and might and wisdom. And we ask that as we gather together as your body, one body, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that you would enable us to set aside the distractions of this week and the cares of this world, and that with humble spirits we would come before you in genuine praise with thanksgiving in our hearts as we enter your courts with praise. We thank you for the inexpressible gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that in him all the fullness of deity dwelled bodily, and that we have in this hour the opportunity to rejoice as we celebrate his birth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you we have been set free. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we are servants of the Most High God. We no longer dwell in darkness, but we have seen a great light. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as you work in our midst this day, we would be molded and shaped and conformed into the image of our Savior. We confess that we have sinned this week. We have sinned in our thoughts. They have been impure. We have sinned in our words. We have said things that were unkind and hurtful. We have sinned in our actions. The things that we have done have violated your law and we are sorry. And we ask for your mercy and forgiveness to once again be bestowed upon us. We thank you that in Christ all of our sins, past, present and future, have been atoned for. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask that you help us by the strength of your spirit to cooperate in our sanctification as we grow in holiness and strive to walk in paths of righteousness. Father, we pray for our city and our state and our nation. We pray for the world that has been in a year of tumult and chaos. We know that even in the midst of the uncertainty, there is one thing that is certain. You, you are a solid rock on which we can stand firm. We pray that in the midst of the upheaval of the nations that you would continue to draw men to yourself, that you would use us to do it in this day, in this hour, this week. We pray that men and women would enter into your family, be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Father, we're grateful for your church. And we ask that you be with your church this day, that there would be peace and safety, that those who normally would come in fear to worship you would this day be freed from that burden and be able to joyfully proclaim praise to your name. 
We ask that that would be the case with us this day. It's in Christ's name we pray together the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Scripture reading comes this morning from Genesis chapter 3, so I invite you to turn with me to the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 3. Familiar passage to us and particularly poignant as we consider the coming of the promised one in this passage. This is God's holy word. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the doxology. Thank you. 
Please be seated. Our Psalter selections come this morning from Selection 41 in the back of the Trinity Hymnal. These selections come from Psalm 86 and 87. You can find them on pages 638 and 639. I'll read the light print and then you join together in the bold. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed, because thou, Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this man was born there. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. Amen. Let's join together in singing hymn number 147, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.
seated. Scripture reading for our passage this morning comes from a familiar passage to you, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We'll read from verse 26 all the way through verse 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This is God's holy word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word. It's your word which you have ensured would come through the ages to us this morning. Men and women have died to make sure that we held the truth of your word in our hands this day. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine it to us. That we would see the truth and believe that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear that which is from the mouth of the living God. We ask, Father, that we would leave this place changed because we have spent time together with you in your word. We pray all these things in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is Christmas all about? We know the answer to that question. We're, we're church people. We can answer that question. But what if you were to take that question out into Tallahassee in general, just to the general public? What is Christmas all about? You'd get a wide variety of answers most likely. Maybe you'd get something like this. Christmas is all about family. Or Christmas is all about giving. Or maybe Christmas is all about peace or love or, or joy kindness. All of those things are good, but that's not really what Christmas is all about. Those things kind of usurp the place in the general public of what Christmas is really all about. And this passage is kind of similar. What is this passage really all about? It's not really all about Gabriel, though he makes an appearance here. It's really not about Mary, even though she's the primary character in this scene. This passage is really all about God. It's really all about God, what he's doing and has been doing up to this point and what he will do from this point forward. The central idea of this text is all about God's faithfulness to his word. And I want us to consider three points this morning as we walk through this passage together. First, I want us to rejoice in God's grace. 
Secondly, I want us to believe in God's promises. And thirdly, I want us to rest in God's power. Rejoice in God's grace, believe in God's promises, and rest in God's power. Our passage this morning comes in an interesting outline as Luke opens his gospel. He begins with the birth of John the Baptist being foretold, followed by our passage, the birth of Christ being foretold. Then there's a song, and then John the Baptist is born. Then there's another song, and then Jesus is born. So there's this intimate interweaving between the story of John the Baptist and Jesus as we open these passages in Luke. And what's particularly interesting as we walk through the opening chapters is it becomes very clear that Luke, this highly educated doctor, is a meticulous historian. It becomes clear that he has most likely personally interviewed Mary herself as a result of the things that he describes in these passages and the details he gives to us in his gospel. Luke makes sure that we know the truth about what is happening around the birth of Jesus. So as we come to the first couple of verses in this passage, verses 26 through 30, I want us to consider this idea of rejoicing in God's grace, because God's grace permeates these opening verses. The first time we see this word used is in verse 28. And you'll notice in the English, it's translated a bit differently in the ESV. The angel comes to Mary and says, Greetings... Oh, favored one. Grace is the word behind that welcome, favored one. And this particular form of the word grace is only used twice in the entire New Testament. Once here. And the second is in Ephesians chapter 1. And in both instances in the New Testament when this word is used, it's used of God extending his freely bestowed grace to those who would receive it, freely bestowing his grace upon a recipient. So in Ephesians chapter 1, this is how Paul uses the word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In both instances, God freely bestows his grace upon us in Christ. Now, Mary is not favored because she has done something to earn God's favor. But God's favor is freely bestowed upon her. She's called favored one because she's the recipient of God's grace, not because she has earned God's grace in some way. This is reiterated in verse 30 when Gabriel says, you have found grace. I remember walking through the parking lot in Walmart one day and there on the ground was a $20 bill. I found it. I found that $20 bill. I didn't earn that $20 bill. I hadn't done anything to deserve it, but I found it. It was unmerited. That's what's happening here in this passage. Mary has received, been the recipient of God's freely bestowed grace and favor upon her. And so appropriately, Gabriel calls her favored one. 
As soon as we start talking about someone earning or deserving or being owed grace, we're no longer talking about grace anymore, are we? Grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved, unfavored. Uh, and that's what happens here in this passage. Mary is favored one because she is the recipient of God's grace. If you were to turn the story around, imagine Mary responding to Gabriel in this way. About time you showed up. This is what I've had coming to me. Where have you been? Far be it for Mary to respond that way, right? She understands what's happening in this passage. She hasn't done anything to earn this honor or privilege, but she has been the recipient of God's unmerited favor. I think the way that she's described in verse 29, that she was greatly troubled by Gabriel's greeting, uh, gives us a little bit of insight into Mary. She understands how undeserving she is of what's happening in this moment. She's troubled that there is this appearance of the angel Gabriel and is considering what in the world is going on here. You might imagine she's asking herself, why is this happening to me? She understands grace. Far be it from us to think that way too. But aren't we prone to do it? We might not explicitly say, you know what, God, you owe me something. But we often think that way, and we often act that way. We think that, God, I've done all this stuff for you. You really kind of owe me this. You've thought that before. I've thought that before. We let our fallen nature steer us in that direction. And so it's important for us to guard against that and to be aware that in our own souls we have the propensity to think that God really owes us something. But God's not in debt to us in any way and even in spite of our sinfulness he freely bestows gifts and grace and favor upon us and i would submit to you that as gabriel speaks this greeting to mary greetings o favored one he's speaking those words to you as well because you also are the recipient of god's unmerited favor in the christ child As Gabriel greets Mary 2,000 years ago, his greeting is coming down through the ages to you, believer. Greetings, O favored one. Here in this passage, you see the longing of the ages and you receive God's grace through the child. We can rejoice in that grace because our God is a God full of grace. And it's clear in these verses that that's what's going on. We can rejoice in God's grace and we can believe in God's promises, secondly. In verses 31 through 33, we'll see seven promises that God fulfills, that God keeps his word on. And as we lead up to verses 31 to 33, Luke is really setting up the picture for us, that this is about to happen. These promises are about to be fulfilled. Look at verses 26 and 27 again and see if you can catch the key words popping as Luke writes them down. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, those two sentences ought to immediately cue you in. Uh Uh-oh, something is about to happen here. That's what Luke's trying to do. He's setting you up because there's about to be a fulfillment of promises, a flurry 
of prophecies that come out of Gabriel's mouth, one after the other. So let's take a look at these. Number one, the first promise fulfilled as Gabriel speaks to Mary. In verse 31, he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now this is almost word for word quotation from Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah writes, Hear then, O house of David, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 750 years or so before this event takes place, Isaiah prophesies this exact moment and Gabriel intentionally chooses these exact words so that as they're pinging off of Mary's ears, she's remembering, oh, Isaiah said that this would happen. And that's the first promise that is fulfilled. Secondly, Gabriel says in verse 31, And you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. And that name means Yahweh saves. So Gabriel tells Mary to call him Jesus. That is Yahweh saves. Again, nearly a direct quote from Isaiah 7 where Isaiah says, And you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel Emmanuel means God with us. So here, Gabriel announces the birth of Jesus. It's coming. Yahweh in Mary's womb, coming to save his people from their sins. And 750 years prior to that, Isaiah already calls it. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Thirdly, the third promise in verse 32 A seemingly mundane phrase, but packed with importance, is, He will be great. Why does Gabriel say that? It seems kind of, okay, he'll be great. That's great. But he's actually quoting again from an Old Testament prophet, the prophet Micah. Listen to Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's no accident that Gabriel uses this phrase. 750 years prior to this moment, the prophet Micah by the Holy Spirit, proclaims this prophecy that the coming one will be great to the ends of the earth. And Gabriel speaks this prophecy to Mary and she is reminded of the promises of God from long ago. Promise number four at the end of verse 32. Gabriel says, And he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is a quotation from Second Samuel chapter 7 where God in his covenant with David says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. One thousand years before this moment, God gives this promise to David. And here Gabriel is reminding Mary, he's reminding you of this promise God has made. And after 1,000 years, this promise is coming true. The fifth promise, 
Gabriel says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Again, from God's covenant with David, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will have the throne of his father David forever, a thousand years before it takes place. Promise number six in verse 33, Gabriel says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So now he's going back even further. This is a quotation from Genesis 49 or a reference to it where Jacob upon his deathbed blesses Judah, his son from whom David and Jesus will come. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs comes. Almost 2,000 years before Gabriel interacts with Mary, Jacob pronounces this prophecy and God makes this promise through him that one from Judah's line will come and sit on the throne. And it's coming true in this virgin child. Number seven, and of his kingdom there will be no end in verse 33. We've already seen that quoted in 2 Samuel 7, but it's quoted repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And listen as Daniel makes this prophecy in chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Gabriel tells Mary his kingdom will have no end. And 600 years ago before this happened, Daniel pronounces that it would be so. Now I don't know if you caught it or not, but all seven of these promises come from all three sections of the Hebrew Old Testament. The law is represented The prophets are represented. The writings are represented. That's no accident that Gabriel should intentionally choose to pick phrases and prophecies from every part of the Old Testament to proclaim what's about to happen. For thousands and thousands of years, saints have looked forward to this day, this moment, as Gabriel pronounces to Mary, you're going to have a son. Even though you're a virgin, And all of these prophecies are going to come true in you. You know, promises are a funny thing. A Danish proverb says, eggs and promises are easily broken. A German proverb says, nothing weighs lighter than a promise. A Hebrew proverb says, promise little and do much. And one unknown author says, promises are like babies, easy to make and hard to deliver. That's true. We make promises all the time. You've made promises to friends. You've made promises to your children. You've made promises to your grandchildren. You've made promises to your wife, to your husband. And you have broken those promises. We've promised to do this or to do that. And we failed to come through. Now, maybe from time to time, we actually do keep a promise. We're actually able to to do that and and maintain our word. But by and large, we are promise breakers and not promise keepers. 
Maybe it's the case that you need to ask forgiveness of somebody to whom you have broken a promise. Or maybe it's time for you to forgive someone who has broken a promise to you. But God doesn't need to ask forgiveness for breaking his promises. God is faithful to his word throughout thousands and thousands of years, thousands and thousands of generations. People come and people go, and yet the Lord's word remains true. Here is a God in whom you can trust. This is a God that you can believe. This is a God of promise. Promises made and promises kept. And that's what Gabriel wants Mary to know in this moment. Mary, you're the one to receive this grace. And the longing of the ages is coming true in this moment. Believe God's promises. That's what Gabriel wants for Mary. And that's what God wants for us. We can rejoice in his grace. We can believe in his promises. And finally, we can rest in God's power. Now let me caveat this section of verses 34 through 38 by emphasizing that we can rest in God's supernatural power. We live in a culture and we live in a world in this post-enlightenment, post-modern milieu that wants to explain away the supernatural, that wants a naturalistic explanation for everything. But that's not what's happening here in this passage. If you strip the supernatural away, just throw it in the garbage, okay? Because it's not worth anything. The supernatural is intrinsic to who God is. And the supernatural power that we see in this passage ought to cause us to rest. To not strive and look for answers that we can explain but to know the God who is powerful beyond our imagination. Now we see this supernatural power primarily displayed in the miracle of the virgin birth. And Mary gets it. She asks this question. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Or literally in the Greek it says, how will this be since I do not know a man? It's a euphemism, right? Mary understands the way of a man with a woman. She understands the birds and the bees. So why does she even ask the question? She's betrothed to Joseph. They're going to be married. Don't you think that would just kind of naturally lead to an explanation, a natural explanation to how this is going to happen? But Mary gets it. She understands from Gabriel's promises that are fulfilling scripture. Something supernatural is about to take place here. It's not going to be because I'm betrothed to Joseph. Something powerful is happening in this moment. And she understands this conception is not going to be by the natural process. So there are five displays of power that we see in verses 35 through 38. Gabriel answers Mary's question in verse 35 initially by saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now what's interesting about this Language is it's the same type of language that's used of the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. You remember that passage? The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters at creation. That's the same thing that Gabriel is saying will happen in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
the Holy Spirit engaged in the creative process will cause this conception to take place. It's a supernatural power. Secondly, Gabriel says in verse 35 that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now again, Gabriel is intentional in the language that he uses because the language he uses here is reminiscent of two things. Number one, it's the same language used as the glory of God coming to rest on the tabernacle. The glory of God came and overshadowed the tabernacle as he came and his presence was with his people. And it's also the same language used in all three accounts of the transfiguration. You remember the story. Jesus takes his inner three up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And what happens as he's transfigured? The cloud of God comes down and overshadows the mountain and envelops them in the mountain. And in that moment, God is with his people and Christ is transfigured before them. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary, just as God came to rest at the tabernacle and enveloped the mountain of transfiguration. The third display of power is in verse 36. Gabriel says, not only that, your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And he says, in her old age, and she who was called barren. So there's two strikes against Elizabeth, you might say. Number one, she's in her old age. It's not like she's a young woman who has been barren and is now conceiving. She's an elderly woman who has been unable to conceive. And it's not like she's an elderly woman who has had 13 children and now she's going to have a 14th child. She's an elderly woman who has been unable to conceive her entire life. And Gabriel says, don't worry about this. Elizabeth's pregnant. And Mary, in her young age, knows Elizabeth and says, well, wow, Elizabeth is pregnant? Elizabeth, my cousin, my elderly cousin? Yes, in her old age, she who was called barren is now with child. The fourth display of supernatural power comes when Gabriel says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. The verb that Gabriel uses or that Luke uses to record this is adunatesi, which comes from an adjective, dunatos. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. And what is dynamite? Dynamite is powerful. And that's the adjective behind the verb used here by Gabriel. What's interesting is that in English we have a a double negative, right? Nothing will be impossible with God. Well, the same is true in the Greek. It says this, for with God, everything will not be impossible. That's a little hard to come across in English, right? So the translators clean it up for us a little bit. But you could also easily translate it this way, for with God, everything is possible. Right? There you get out the double negative there, right? With God, everything is possible. God is powerful. Now, the fifth display of God's supernatural power, you might not initially pick up on, but it is there, and it's in verse 38. It's Mary's response. Mary's response to Gabriel is one of faith. 
She says, let it be to me according to your word. It's a supernatural act of God's power that she responds in faith instead of disbelief. She doesn't respond the way that other women in her similar circumstances have responded in Scripture. So think about Sarah. Remember Abraham's wife, Sarah, when she overhears that she, in her old age, is going to have a child, what's her response? She laughs. She doesn't say, let it be to me according to your word. She laughs in unbelief. This can't be true. This isn't true. And then God asks Abraham, why did she laugh? Because <laughs> she didn't believe, right? But Mary's response is not like Sarah's. Or you might think about Rachel, Jacob's wife. Remember, Jacob gets tricked into marrying Rachel's older sister Leah first. And God blesses Leah with children. But Rachel is barren. And she doesn't have children. And she desperately wants children. And how does Rachel respond to this circumstance? Does she say, let it be to me according to your word? No. She gives her servant to her husband as an extra wife. And that's how I'm going to have a child. No, that's again a response in unbelief. So Mary doesn't believe or act like Sarah or Rachel. She responds in belief. And that's a supernatural power, an act by God in Mary's soul that she should respond in that way. When you were a kid, do you ever remember saying something like this? Oh, my dad can beat up your dad. You are so proud of your dad's strength. You were impressed by your dad's power. One day I was in the backyard and I picked up a lawn chair with one hand and walked across the yard and set it down. And my four-year-old son said, how did you do that? I felt pretty good about myself picking up that lawn chair. I was powerful in his eyes. Look at dad. He can do that. Or I have a memory when I was young, my father in the military was... uh, into weightlifting and he would always enter bench press competitions on the military base and he was a chaplain and so everybody thought that's just a chaplain but he would win every single bench pressing competition and all the sailors oh that guy's so strong it's the chaplain did you know that and i was so proud that's my that's my dad he's so powerful that he can do that that's what luke wants you to feel in this passage that's my god look at how powerful he is look what he's doing nothing is impossible for my God. He can do anything. All things with him are possible. He can make this happen. You can't explain away the supernatural in this passage. You can't explain away the miraculous. The powerful God that is clearly present here. This God is powerful to make you holy. This God is powerful to actually forgive your sins. This God is powerful to save your fallen soul. This God is powerful to raise the dead. This God is powerful to keep His promises. This God is powerful to make you whole, to heal your relationships, to bring life out of dead. This God is powerful to create life in the womb of a virgin. This God is powerful to take on human flesh. To set aside his glory. To enter into a fallen world. And to live among us yet without sin. 
Our God is a God of supernatural power. What is Christmas all about? It's about love. It's about peace. It's about joy. It's about family and giving. And it's about all that kind of stuff. But it's not really about that. It's really about this. This moment. Where God in His faithfulness to His Word, His faithfulness to His people, shows His grace, fulfills His promises, displays His power, that the one He said would come is here. The one who will undo all that has been made wrong will make it right. And that's what Christmas is all about. And you can rejoice. And you can believe. And you can rest in this mighty God. Let us pray. Father, we are moved by this passage. It's a passage that's familiar to us. We've known it since we were children. And we see you in it. And we know that Gabriel is there. And we know that Mary is there. And they're good. But there's nothing so good as your grace. There's nothing so good as your faithfulness to your promises. There's nothing so good as your almighty power. And that you should freely bestow these things upon us. We who have transgressed your law is a humbling reality. Let us rejoice in it. Let us find strength in it. Let us proclaim it from the rooftops that there is life and joy and peace in its fullest sense found in Christ and in no other. And may we go out into this week proclaiming the truth that Christ the Savior is born. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand with me and we'll sing our hymn of response number 168, Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.